0: What a great line, none shall share thy glory, all shall bow before thee. And that's why we're here today. We're here to give God the praise that he deserves and the the glory and the worship that he deserves. We're going to be in John chapter 4. It'll take us just a little bit before we get there. I want to start with a story. It's kind of a sad story in one way because it's not what God deserves, but in 1977, Maria Rubio of Lake Arthur, New Mexico, was assembling a burrito when she noticed that the skillet marks uh, that were left on her tortilla bore the image of a very famous Roman Catholic image of Jesus. So Maria took the tortilla to her priest to have it blessed. She testified that The tortilla had changed her life and that Mr. Rubio had noticed the change that she'd become more pleasant to live with. The priest, not accustomed to blessing tortillas, was somewhat reluctant but agreed. Mrs. Rubio then took the tortilla home and put it in a shadow box and surrounded it by cotton balls so it looked like the face of Jesus was floating in the clouds. And then she placed it in their backyard in a shed and she opened what became known as the Shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla. And what's surprising to me is that within a few months, 8,000 people had visited the Shrine of the Jesus of the, of the Tortilla. They all agreed that the burn marks on the Tortilla resembled the face of Jesus with the exception of one reporter who said it looked like Leon Spinks, who was a, f- he was a famous boxer. He was known for being ugly because his teeth were missing. Within two years, more than 5,000 people had visited the shrine, or I'm sorry, 50,000 people. And this continued for 28 years, even as the tortilla faded and the, the marks could hardly be made out. And then in 2005, Mrs. Rubio's granddaughter took the tortilla in the shadow box to school for show and tell. And someone dropped it, and the tortilla shattered. They tried to reassemble the pieces, but they couldn't. So they just left them in the box and put it back in the shrine. And over the next few years, as the the, the shed began to deteriorate, they closed uh, They closed the shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla. However, many others were led to see Jesus elsewhere. And so there were famous sightings of Jesus in the oil stain in the garage of one man, burnt toast, brown bananas, and even a misshaped Cheeto. You know, each one of these stories illustrates, I think, Two things. One, that in each of us there is this desire or passion or urge to worship a creator, to worship God. Unfortunately, it also highlights the fact that we can misplace that worship and put it in the wrong things. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 25, tells us this that. People changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we're going to begin a new study this week starting on worship. And uh, we'll, we'll begin today by looking at John chapter 4 where we're going to see that Jesus clearly defines what true worship looks like. And if we're going to give God what he deserves, which is the glory and the honor and the majesty that we just sang about, then we have to understand it must be in the context of what God says is true worship, not what we prefer or desire or are moved to give in worship. And so as a person who is created, you and I are given the priority of honoring the Lord. And there's a lot of commands in Scripture, but I want to start at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, that God created man and woman. Male and female created he them. And he creates mankind to be the pinnacle of creation. He created them, the Bible says, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And so God created mankind different, unique from all the animals of the world, all the plants of the world. He, he created mankind to bear his image. That means man has a, a body, a soul, and a spirit, something that no other creatures have, something that sets us apart, that makes us in a way like God, not that we are God, we could never be God, and yet we bear this shadow or this resemblance of who God is. And so God created us to represent him, to speak for him. He created us this way so that we give him glory, the glory that he deserves, far above what creation can even give. And so he created us with the ability to create We can create things. We can invent things. We can invest our time in unique ways. We can proclaim good and true things. We can communicate higher than any other form of creation. We can illustrate who who God is and what he has done for us. And we can prioritize the glorious nature of God. And so he created man with this ability in his image. And as image bearers, we're, we're to respect him. We're to give him glory and honor and reverence. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, it says, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. And so we're created to give God glory to make known the unsearchable riches of Christ or another way to say that is the unfathomable riches the we there's an we have an inability to, to find the very depths of God's glory with a thousand lifetimes and millions of people we could never find the, get to the bottom of how glorious God is and that's what we're to proclaim we're to do it in a unique way because we can walk with God in fact, this is a theme that starts, again, at the very beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, it says that God made Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and God walked with them in the cool of the evening. Now, think about that. I, I believe that's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So before Jesus Christ came to earth as God, he walked in human form, or at least in spirit, with Adam and Eve. And he communicated with them. And a walk with God, is a, that's a big That's a big deal. In fact, if I could put it in basic terms, it would be to be in step with God. In fact, as you look through Scripture, we find over and over again this theme. In Genesis chapter 5, in verse 22, it says, Methuselah walked with God. Methuselah was the oldest man to ever live. Shortly thereafter, three verses later, Enoch walked with God, and God knew him, and God took him. Noah walked with God, and through Noah, God used Uh, Noah to bring about saving of mankind. Abraham, who had the covenants from God, it says, walked with God in Genesis chapter 17. And his son Isaac and his son Jacob and Joseph all walked with God. In fact, you continue on. Israel was commanded to walk with God in Deuteronomy 5.33. And Deuteronomy eleven twenty two says, For if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways. And then God gives them promises. So God expects man to walk with him. Now, it, it's, it's really important. The church even then is commanded to walk in Colossians 1, verse 10. We're commanded to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So this theme, all through the Old and all through the New Testament of walking with God, and it's us who is commanded to walk with God. It doesn't say that God will come walk with us, that God will come and agree with us and be in step with us. The contrary, we are to agree and be in step with God. We are to walk with God. And so this command is given, and and, and to put that in plain terms, I believe it means to, to worship, to fellowship with God. So we're all created to worship, to unite with God in agreement. And it's not about God joining us, but us joining God, agreeing with him. What well, we see in John chapter 4, Jesus is going to address this with this woman. It's the famous passage. You might be familiar with it. Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. And he's talking to this woman who is, to be honest, she's not a good woman. She's pretty wicked. She's lived a very sexual life. She's an outcast to the point where no one in the village wants anything to do with her. So she's at the end of the day by herself at the well. Not something that was customary. And Jesus comes and he has a conversation with her. Would you read with me John chapter 4? We're going to read a lot just to get mainly to two verses. But John chapter 4 verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. I'm going to stop there. The woman tries to kind of get into an argument about religion with Jesus. You see, there's been animosity going on at this point for 600 years in Jerusalem between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans say you have to worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jews say you have to worship on, uh, in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And so there's this strong disagreement. In fact, you see, she believes in the Messiah because in a few verses she'll say when the Messiah comes, he'll straighten everything out. And so there's this argument about where is the right place to worship, and Jesus is trying to point out it's not about where you worship, it's about who you worship. You have to worship correctly. And the Jews and the Samaritans are getting it wrong. It's interesting, I was in Jerusalem in in May last year, and I I stood on Mount Gerizim where there are still Samaritans. 2,600 years they've been arguing, and they're still arguing. I stood on the Temple Mount. There's lots of animosity about the Temple Mount. Everywhere I went in Israel, there's people in disagreement about how to worship God. And yet what we find here in Scripture, God makes it really clear. In fact, let's just read it. Just so you know how clear it is, Jesus says to her, down in verse 23, The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. You see, they got, they got it wrong. It's not about the proper place. It's not about the proper mode or the proper rituals. It's about worshiping God the way He has asked, the way He deserves to worship. And mankind gets this right. God demands a purity in worship and people think that worship is debatable. People, Christians, think that worship is debatable. Mankind believes that worship is adjusting our desires. It it gets relegated to our feelings and our standards and our preferences. We worship God in a way that we're comfortable with, and we think that eventually, if we can do that correctly, then we work up enough passion in God to respond to us. It's very incorrect. Worship is all about God. It is not about us. In fact, one of the clearest passages is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we have this all-encompassing statement. Everything you do, all the things that you do are to be to the praise of God, to honor Him. Not to honor yourself, not to honor your truth, but to honor God's truth. In fact it's really clear it's it's simple whether you eat or drink or whatever you do that that's everything even the mundane things of eating and drinking we're to do it in a way that honors God and everything that we do this is this is about participation right there's an act of doing you're either eating or you're drinking, or you're doing something else. And in everything that you do, you are to give God praise. That's worship and glory to God is not a spectator sport. That's why we worship today, although we kind of spruce things up a little bit with having the orchestra, we want you and ask you to participate in songs. To sing praises to God. When we open up scripture, we want you to open up scripture and look and see it for yourself. That we, you need to participate now. And you are. You're listening. That's what God asks. It's not about a performance of people up here on a, on a platform. It's about giving God what he deserves. And each one of us are called to participate in that. And so there's this divide between the, Sam- the Samaritans and the Jews that she's going to highlight here, this woman. There's obvious animosity. There's a-, a difference in religious practices. And guess what? There's always a difference in religious practices because religion does not get things right. In fact, he's gonna- Jesus is going to point that out. The Jews are wrong in their practice. The Samaritans are wrong in their practice. What's interesting is I stood on Mount Gerizim looking down over the city of Sychar. There were riots and gunfire down in the city to so the point I I didn't get to go to Jacob's well and I'm not over it yet. I'm kind of frustrated. You go thousands of miles and I, got, I was within sight of it and I couldn't go because of the gunfire and the riots. Why are there gunfire and riots? Well, Because man is depraved and man is still fighting over these religious sites. Because we put improper focus on external worship. In fact, the woman here acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. She she even says this, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she's going to pin him to this question. Jesus just told her, basically, that she's a wicked woman. He says, you've had five husbands and you're living with a guy now. That's the reason you're here alone at this time of the day. You're not a good woman. And she, her response is, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> you're telling me things that you have no right necessarily to know because he's not from that town. He must have knowledge from God. And so she asks him the question that's burning in her heart because she wants to worship God. But there's this big argument in her mind there's only two choices. You either worship at Mount Gerizim or you worship at the Temple Mount. And neither one of those are correct. And so Jesus points out how she must worship. In fact, in John chapter 3, there begin three musts that God gives. These statements, and they begin in in John chapter 3 verse 7, when Jesus says, you must be born again. This is a big deal. Only three times Jesus says you must do this in the, in the gospel of John. You must be born again. And then he follows it up in 3.14 with the statement, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, we have the value of hindsight. We look back at what Jesus was saying, and when Jesus says he must be lifted up, we know he's talking about the cross. In other words, he must die on the cross. In fact, just so we know the clarity of that statement, two verses later we have the most famous verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What's it attached to? It's attached to the fact that Jesus must be lifted up. He must pay the penalty of sin on the cross. And he knew it. He knew it in John 3. And then in John chapter 4, we have this statement that we just read. Worshipers must worship him in spirit. And truth and so God must be worshiped correctly and so let's look at that what does that correct worship look like well, it's basic. He even tells us it's spirit and truth. What does it mean? Spirit means we are, we're created with a body and a soul and a spirit, and we have this heart, and we have a mind. So we have passions. We have emotions. Emotions are, are a good thing that God created, but we use them the wrong way. Emotions are deceiving sometimes. And yet God calls us to worship him with our emotions, with praise, with love, with kindness. We're to worship God in our spirit, from our heart, we would say, from our heart, deep within. Our very inner being must worship God. So it's not just conforming to an outer pattern. It's not looking the right way. It's not, just, it's not saying the right words. It's worshiping God from our heart. Spurgeon says this, Charles Spurgeon, wonderful quote, I love it. God does not regard our voices He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Right? We can stand with the loudest voice possible. We can declare in in voice and song. We can sing loud. But if we're not singing from our heart, it's empty. And so we're called to, to sing from a heart that is devoted to the Lord. External conformity is is useless if there's not inner devotion. And it's interesting, there's kind of like two ditches that we can very easily fall into. One is dead orthodoxy. That's just, I say the right things, I go through the ritual, I go through the motions, I look the right way, I say the right things, but I don't mean it from my heart. That's empty worship. That's only, possibly, worshiping God in truth, but not with our spirit, And the other side of that is to to rile ourselves up emotionally and to get so ginned up and so excited about what we're saying but, but have it absent of any truth. It's void of substance. Oh, we sing with our heart passionately, but we don't even know what the truth is. And both of them are false worship. Both of them fall short of what God asks. Dead orthodoxy on one hand and zealous heterodoxy on the other. And so we're called to worship God in our spirit, with a renewed mind. And when we do that, when we worship God from our heart, our hunger for God enlarges and our capacity to give Him praise increases. But it has to be coupled with truth, the second half. We must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so truth is according to what God says about himself, not what we want to believe about God, not what is comfortable for us to believe about God, but what God says about himself. And let me tell you, there's an entire book filled with what God says about himself. And when we try to worship God without this, we're going to worship God maybe in spirit, but probably not in truth. In fact, there's... There's evidence of that in scripture. A couple very famous times where people tried to give God worship that was not appropriate. I think of Cain. Cain and Abel. We all know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Because Abel offered a more appropriate Sacrifice. God says, "Give me a sacrifice, and I want it to be a lamb. You must shed blood because the shedding of blood is a picture of the, the cost of your sin. And so Abel takes a lamb from his flock and he kills, he slits the throat of that lamb, and he offers it as an offering to God. But Cain was a farmer, the Bible tells us, and he took the produce from his field, and he offered that, he burnt that before the Lord, and it was not acceptable. Because God told him what he wanted. He told him what to do. And Cain acted as if he knew better. He acted as if God didn't have enough wisdom. He acted as if God was not good enough. Or that his produce was not good enough. And so he thought little of God. Think of the New Testament, the story of Ananias and Sapphira they had land, and they took their land, and they sold it, and they gave some of the money to the church, but they kept some of it back. And it's not bad that they kept some of it back, except for the fact they lied about it. They told everyone they gave all of it to the Lord. It was a lie. They didn't worship God in truth in two different ways. And they offer this money, and, and the whole they try to lie to God as if God is not omniscient, as if God didn't know what was going on in their hearts. They thought they could hide it from God. You know what they did? They formed their own version of God and tried to worship that God. Or think of the Corinthian church. It was a very wicked church, sexual church. The whole city of Corinth was filled with prostitutes and sexual religious practices. And it began to creep into the church. And people thought that they could worship God, they could hold on to their sin all week long, and they could just come to church and say, God, please forgive me, and and then God would just kind of pass over everything. They could live however they wanted during the week, and then as long as they went through the ritual of going to church, God would be pleased with them. They formed their own God. God does not care about what we do only on Sundays. And so they worshiped, in their own truth. Now, I do not even have to say, I'm probably saying phrases that 10 years ago, if I had said, would be no big deal. But now just me saying they worship God in their own truth, it stirs up emotion inside of us because our world, our country, is filled with a lot of people who pursue only their own truth. You can never please God in your own truth. It doesn't matter even if your truth seems to line up exactly with God. You must pursue God in his truth. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. It's not about Mount Gerizim. It's not about the Temple Mount. It's about worshiping God from your heart according to what he says is the truth. And so all this wrong thinking about God is idolatry. And we have a lot of it. It it creeps even into churches. A lot of people that believe that God is this cosmic force that kind of created things and got it going and then he just leaves it to itself. Yet scripture tells us God cares very much for all the details of all of creation. Some people think that you know, God is a, a lottery ticket of blessing. And as long as I keep testing and trying to do what is right, eventually God has to bless me because I've gained his favor. We can never be deserving enough. We can never do enough to earn God's favor. That's why he sent his only begotten son into the world. If we could gain it of our, own, of our own doings, then we've just created our own God. We never needed him in the first place. Or some people believe that God is like karma. You know, what kind of goes around comes around. Or that God is a failsafe. Now, I just live my life, and in the moment that I need him the most, if I just turn then to him, he'll forgive me. It's kind of like a, a lifeboat. And I won't really think about him much until I actually need him. All of those fail to worship God correctly, because worship requires thought. And so every worship service, And every worshipful moment demands activity of our mind, not just the external practices that we become accustomed to. We must develop the ability to think deeply about God, to hold contrasting truths about God even, because God doesn't fit into this nice, neat little box that we can understand. How do you explain the fact that God is perfectly holy and just, and at the same time, God is perfectly loving? You see, justice and love or justice and mercy, sometimes in our mind, they oppose each other. And yet scripture says that God is so far above our ways and his thoughts so high above our thoughts that we cannot comprehend how God can be perfectly merciful and perfectly loving at the same time. You know what it requires? Faith. It requires faith that what God says about himself is true. And we can build that faith or that faith can be built in us as we study and we realize that everything he says about himself is true. And so there's things we can see about God, how he deals with mankind, what he's done in creation. We can see and we can know that what God says is true. And so these hard-to-believe things, these complex uh, components, like God is is sovereign over everything. He has absolutely control over every aspect of creation, and he also gives us free will. Those are, at times, they seem to be contrasting truths. How can it be? And so we have to trust that what God says about himself is true and worship him in his truth, not our truth. When we try to worship God in our truth, we just recreate a comfortable God that doesn't demand very much of us. And he's he's there when we need him. That's not who God is. Oh, God is there when we need him, when we humbly come to him and we worship him in our spirit. I want to close with one profound thought and it's the fact it's it's unique to Christianity and it's the central idea. And it's that we're not seeking God. God is seeking us. Listen, Buddha doesn't seek out followers. The Hindu gods do not seek out uh, followers. Allah does not seek out followers. The Mormon belief of, uh, of who Christ is does not seek out followers. Jehovah's Witness. There's only one form of truth that says that God sent his only begotten son into the world to seek out sinners. And that is Jesus Christ. And we need to acknowledge that claim and understand the immensity of it. Worship of God is centered in his word, and it's, it's done in the spirit. And this is what Jesus is trying to clarify with the woman, and she's just not getting it. And so what does Jesus do? Look at, look at verse 23 again. The hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth the woman said i know that messiah is coming who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things you know why she doesn't quite believe him She says, hey, I know you're a prophet and Jesus tells her all these things and she says, all right, since you're a prophet, tell me, where do we worship? Is it Gerizim or is it the Temple Mount? Tell me, who's right? Well, the answer is neither one is right. And she says, ah, the Messiah will tell us when he comes. And what does Jesus say? I love verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Listen, Jesus very clearly claimed to be the Messiah. And there's one very clear instance. She's not getting it. Now listen, I think the woman genuinely wants to know She's desiring to know. She's lost. She's spent her whole life trying to find happiness in all the wrong places and she's still miserable. She's broken and she's weary and she's tired and she's alone and she wants the truth. The problem is the Samaritan religion is not telling her. D- Judaism is not telling her. And so the Messiah comes and the Messiah tells her. In fact, later on, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way of, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Her response matters. In fact, in her response, she'll go to the town and she tells everyone in the town, come, I have met the Messiah. Verse 41 tells us, many more believed because of his own word. The town comes out to hear Jesus and the town concludes Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know what happened to that woman that day? She repented. She changed her mind. And she agreed with Jesus Christ. She'd been trying to worship God her way. She'd been trying to find her own truth. And she was miserable until she met Jesus. God alone provides salvation. And he did it through his death and his resurrection. That's why we celebrate Easter. Because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. They could not kill and keep in the grave the Son of God. And so I ask you today, do you agree with God? Adam and Eve walked with God. Methuselah, Enoch, Noah, Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, they walked with God, they agreed with him, and they worshiped him in spirit and in truth. Do you agree with God? The first agreement you can have is that you are a sinner and you need the Savior. And so I ask you, have you agreed with Jesus about that? That's why, that's why Jesus says in John three sixteen. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The woman at the well, she knew she needed everlasting life. What about you today? Can I urge you, agree with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for salvation that is rich and it is free. And we acknowledge right now that there are times we are tempted to believe lies and we do not agree with you, but we, Lord, we must agree with you. I pray you'd help us to understand the truth, your truth, not our truth. Reveal to us right now in each of our minds where it is that we are clinging to our own version of who God should be or who we want you to be. And I pray you'd transform our thinking. Lord, give us wisdom so that we respond to you in spirit and in truth. And if there's someone here today who if they were to pass into eternity now, they were to die today, they don't know you as their Savior, Lord. I pray today they would humble themselves and repent and agree with you. Agree with you that they are sinners and they need your salvation. Agree with you that you are the only way, the truth, and the life. Lord, they would accept the payment that you made for them on the cross, the payment for their sins. Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't understand that, I pray they would get clarity before they leave. Lord, we thank you that when we are broken and weary, we can come to you. I pray you'd guide our hearts now. We would surrender them to you. We would agree with you about what is the truth. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.